I didn't mention this last episode, but I have been recovering from my reverse BBL. Otherwise, my life has been very uneventful. But I, I know that we haven't really had a consistent schedule with episodes. And it'll probably continue to be that way. Because of who we are as <laughs> because people. Because of who we are as people. Because we're not going to professionalize what we're having fun with. Yeah. For real. Yeah, we were actually having that discussion before we recorded today. It's like, oh shit, this is episode four. Two is like, damn, these bitches are like those friends that are like, we should have a podcast. <laughs> and we are. And, and we are. And then three episodes is that territory of like, man, are they kind of for real with it? And four episodes is like, okay, you guys must have nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. We do have better things to do. Yeah. I don't. I'm really unemployed right now. <laughs> I mean, my routine, I wake up anywhere between 7 a.m. and noon and sometimes okay, later. sometimes later. Sometimes later. Or I'll go back to bed and then I go make coffee and in the cabinet with my coffee, coffee pot, coffee mug is also my deodorant. And I put on my deodorant <laughs> while I'm making my coffee. That's so streamlined. <laughs> and then I drink my coffee and then I do a pull up. and <laughs> Just one? Just one. Usually one. And then after I've pooped and stuff. Well, okay, yeah, fair enough. Several pull ups on just coffee. Yeah. You're like no. straining a bit. I don't want to do no. fainting. But I think one is, you know. Just, I mean, I do multiple throughout the day. One Anytime pump. I walk through the doorway, the doorway i do okay. one anyway that's all to say i don't have anything going on in my life <laughs> oh my god okay i'm putting a pin on this for later but the way that you have arranged the activities of, of caring for yourself is perfectly aligned with what we will be discussing oh today my god. that's exciting i'm an animal i'm a human animal you are the human animal Thank we you. are human animals <laughs> anyway before we really get into the nitty-gritty of what we're discussing today I thought we could go around and share some anecdotes from our own lives about, I don't know how to phrase it. Our relations with nature and its beauty. Yes. Yeah. That's perfect. She finishes my sentences. Literally. It's just like <laughs> I live in your mind. Yeah. I think a recent beautiful nature anecdote is we've finally been having, oh no. Oh, she's going to eat. damn flower. <laughs> <laughs> the flora and the fauna. If I was a cat, I would also be eating flowers. I was in a wax poetic about how the weather has finally been changing. I, for one, hate summer. I abhor it, which I know is not a very ecosexual perspective <laughs> to have. I just do not like the heat, and so it's such a relief when it starts getting a little bit cooler outside, and when I can feel a one degree temperature difference, it makes like all of the change in my mood. But my favorite thing is when it comes down to a rainy afternoon, pouring sheets of rain. And you would definitely not want to be caught out in it, walking around or anything. But if I get to sit on my parents' porch and just sit there and watch the rain, I can do that for hours. And I do feel like a human animal in that moment, for sure. Because it's one of the few times where I'm like, I don't need to be on my phone. And I also don't even really need to have a conscious thought right now. I just want to be in a place of watching the rain it's a very, very precise happiness that that gives me. I don't know how they know this, but apparently bears derive pleasure from looking at the scenery. Probably because bears have been observed to just sit down and watch a sunset or something. That's so beautiful. This is this is kind of a gape fact. I don't know how true this is. <laughs> I'm sure that somebody knows more about this. The irony of it is that it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience when I'm in that blissful state of nature or whatever. 
but it's actually quite an embodied experience. I'm literally feeling that mistiness on my face, the temperature on my body, the feeling of the water, like the occasional droplet hitting you on the face. It's so embodied, but it's able to take you out of the alienation of daily life. It's almost as good as scrolling on my phone. It really is. <laughs> not quite. Not quite there. <laughs> Touching grass. So I was thinking about that because I also sat on my porch and watched the storm come in. I was on the porch from the point of like when the wind picked up and I could sort of feel and hear the storm coming at a northeastern angle. I couldn't actually pinpoint the moment where the rain began to fall because it blended in with the sound of the wind through the leaves. But then I was there at the moment when it began pouring and when the gutters overflowed. And then I was there through its gradual diminishing. And I thought like, I am nowhere else. Like I am underneath the path of this storm and I can't help but use all my senses to perceive what's happening. It reminds me of what you say in yoga, be here and nowhere else. There's a few times in my life where I feel like I'm here and nowhere else and it's almost always when I'm having an embodied experience. And, you know, a guided experience like yoga or meditation is a great way to get there. But the fact that the beauty of nature can just move you to it definitely makes me understand the romantic movement a little bit better. Those bitches were onto something. Yeah, yeah. that's why I love an outdoor practice. Yes. Um, I was recently at a yoga retreat in Utah. Which was, like, weird and good. Um, Yeah, I feel many different ways about it, but there was a point where I was spending some free time by this stream. I wanted to enter the water, but there was what I thought was a snake sitting between these rocks where I wanted to enter the water. I'm really, really, really afraid of snakes. I've, like, had a phobia for a very long time. So I went away from that area (laughs) and went down toward the other end of the stream And I saw another woman who was on the retreat. I said to her like, oh, hey, there's a snake down there. And uh, oh oh my God, there's a snake right there. There's like a snake right there on the log right next to you. And she was like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What a (laughs) chilling. She she was totally fine with it. Like it was just like a little snake. It was cute and beautiful, but it was chilling there. And she was like, yeah, I don't think it's moved since I sat down and I was like, can I sit next to you and talk to you? And I did for like a whole hour. And I just like shared space with the snake. I'm very proud of myself. Molly, that's, awesome. that's so impressive, dude. You were doing um, exposure therapy to yourself. No, yeah. literally. That's very stuns. Can you describe what the snake looked like? It was probably under two feet long, not wide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also, I always give measurements in girth first. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a girthy snake. It wasn't a girthy snake. It was a very skinny snake. Oh. Um, skinny. Was, that was Bella Hadid. <laughs> you were with she was on the retreat. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a good experience. Kind of garter snakey looking, and every once in a while, it would, like wobble its head. Molly's wobbling her head. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> did it look at you? No, it was oh. unbothered. Oh, so it did not give a fuck. Minding her business. It yes. was winning the IDGAF or Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, I'm struggling to remember how old I was exactly. To me, children are all kind of the same age, which right. is child age. Every um, child is like seven. Pretty That's much. It's very yeah. European. Like, it's a baby. Mm-hmm. I was European, so. Um, <laughs> I went to this wake or funeral or something. It was a family friend. I went with my parents and it was out in the country. I think it was actually around this time of year-ish. It was the end of summer. 
and it was on the edge of a forest. And pretty much as soon as I got there, I, much like the snake, did not give a fuck. <laughs> I was like, this dude's dead. I don't really know him. I have no opportunity to get to know him better right now, um, which is very close-minded of me. And so I just went into the forest. <laughs> I think I was following a trail at first. So I walked along the trail for an indeterminate amount of time. And I entered into a space of feeling very embodied which I think maybe previously I would have described this as a sort of supernatural feeling. But now as I get older, I think it is exceptionally natural. Mm. I remember being very aware of the sounds of the birds and the fact that the sun was approaching setting and looking at the leaves and the way that the path kind of at times became a part of the forest, that the desire path itself would kind of fade away. And I walked until I entered a clearing and in the center of the clearing was a gazebo, and there's a woman in the gazebo. And I walked up, and I sat down next to her. I did not know this woman, and she gave me this kind of odd look, like she wasn't sure if I was supposed to be there. And she had a pair of binoculars. I can't remember if she was watching butterflies or birds. Either would make sense. It might have been monarch season, but also like migration. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. She was watching something that could fly. And I just sat down next to her and watched her watch the flying things. And every couple minutes, she would look at me and regard me with a confused expression. And eventually, she wordlessly handed the binoculars to me. And I watched the flying things too. And then I gave them back to her. And we sat a little bit longer. And by that time, the sun was getting very close to fully setting. Um, and then eventually she asked me if I needed help getting back, to which I said no very confidently. She honestly should have helped me. I don't know why she <laughs> She was just like, okay, whatever. And she left. She went the opposite direction. She also degraded. She did not give a fuck. And so I started walking in the vague direction I had come from. I started to get a little bit anxious that maybe I was lost. And in my very childlike state of mind, I went to internally and started thinking, like, I hope that I can see signs that will lead me back to the exit. And I actually remember seeing a snake traveling mm. a very specific direction. And I was like, I'm just going to follow this snake. Like, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went off of a path, I think, and I was just kind of walking through the forest. It wasn't particularly dense. And then I started to hear... But was absolutely my parents screaming my name over and over again <laughs> and other people. Um, and I just kind of followed birds and sounds and the wind and this damn snake and just the general vibes, my woo-woo vibes until I emerged out of the forest. And my parents were really pissed, but very happy that I hadn't disappeared. But I revisit that memory kind of anytime I'm thinking about being embodied because it really stuck with me obviously i just yeah. want you told it very beautifully future. too i feel like Thank i you. was i could see myself experiencing the landscape through little gabe's eyes yeah it's also a very gabe situation 
You know that feeling when you're a kid and you go to a lake in a forest and you run into a beautiful lady with a, you yeah. know. Like a wood nymph. Yeah. Like, <laughs> who bro. never said a word, but it was definitely real. Yeah. I feel like I want to know. Like, no, bro, that didn't happen to the rest of us. I, I that woman's I'm... been dead for 30 years. <laughs> she, I always wonder what her version of the story was. Yeah. Because she probably was freaked out. What if she thought you were a little Victorian ghost? I bet she did. What if, yeah. Because I was dressed in funeral attire. That's sick, dude. I was wearing a black, I don't know, outfit. She, like, was yeah. uh, asking you if you needed help just so that you couldn't wreak a curse on her and her descendants. Oh, absolutely. It was an encounter where one thought the other was more than they appeared. Yeah. Mm. I, I think a lot about it because it's a time that I didn't feel alienated, but I felt lonely in the company of something that was much larger than myself, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. But yeah. It was very ecological, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like the call of the void or like Stendhal syndrome or... What's that? What's that? That's like when you encounter something that is so overwhelmingly beautiful, or I guess just so overwhelming, mm-hmm. that you begin to scream and cry and throw up. Really? Oh, yeah. I was done That's beautiful. <laughs> I don't know, it made me think of, which I'm always thinking about Dune, <laughs> it made me think about Frank Herbert's Dune, because there is a geologist that is sent there by like the planetary you know, empire to go and explore the planet Arrakis, and for a lot of his career on this planet, he is wandering through the desert alone, and he's able to discover so much about it. Um, from ecological perspective, but I imagine all the time, like, what it must be like to think, like, I'm the only human being for, like, miles and miles around. And yet there is so much life around me. So that's definitely something that makes my heart beat faster. In a sexual sense. way? Yeah, I, I'm kind of hard right now. Yeah. I've been bricked up this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think we got to the sexy part of ecosexuality. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something, I mean... We got to the relationality of it, I think. For uh, sure, for sure. I mean, what is sex but relating to somebody? So true. On a very physical level, I guess. You can definitely have sex with people you don't relate to. <laughs> I was going to say, not the way I do it. <laughs> I think that it's not a problem that we didn't get too far into the sexuality component of ego-sexuality because I think a lot of times people, whether it's the first time they've heard it or not, will think about it like, oh, but they're going to add the whole alphabet to the LGBTQ plus. But it's not necessarily its objective, as I understand it. I feel like ego-sexuality is more of a methodology for being in relation to the earth than it is an actual sexual orientation. Though some people kind of use it that way in a tongue-in-cheek manner. Yeah, and I think the practice itself asks us to consider, like, well, what is the difference between those approaches, right? Molly, will you tell us about the people who founded ecosexuality? Yeah. Can I put you on the spot? <laughs> no, you can, you can, because um, I had the absolute pleasure of 
meeting Annie Sprinkle and Beth Stevens. Um, they visited the museum that I work at earlier this spring. They are filmmakers. They're activists. They're performance artists. Beth is a professor at UC Davis, I'm pretty sure. I feel like Santa Cruz. Santa, Santa Cruz, Cruz yeah. I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, Annie was a porn star, did a lot of performance art that is related to sex work. The two met and fell in love and coined this term, ecosexuality. And the way they describe it is saying yes to the earth instead of just saying no. Um, or embodying some of those more, I guess, disembodying yourself from the earth, like conserving it. Definitely a sense of like, I am separate from the earth. The earth is this concept and Mm -hmm. I relate to it as a concept rather than, I think what I've learned from reading up on ecosexuality and specifically some really, really wonderful things from uh, Annie and Beth's book, ecosexuality, the story of our love with the earth, they really, really work hard to make this born of several traditions that come before it about environmentalism, while also really trying to make it something that is radical in like the modern age. Coming from Captain Planet cartoons on TV, hearing about recycling all the time, uh, honestly seeing recycling become popularized, I think, throughout my life. And also, like, I distinctly and vividly remember the Deepwater Horizon spill and learning about it in school. I remember the Dawn ads for the little baby penguins. God, not the Dawn ads. Right? And I think it's, like, I was so entrenched in, like, a capitalist approach to environmentalism as a political front that is very much, like, a lobbying type of thing. Um, Right, yeah. If that makes sense. The way that they explained it to me when we met was instead of thinking about the earth as a a mother, like we so frequently do, we think of the earth as a lover. So that way we're not like, mommy, take care of me. We're like, what can we do for you, lover? Yes. Which is quite refreshing when you put it that way. Yeah. It's more reciprocal. Yeah. Um, And we have a lot of enduring narratives about treating the earth like a mother with whether it's, like, the fucking giving tree. I was going to say, you right. have such strong feelings about the giving tree, and it applies so well here. Is it any wonder that we haven't taken good care of the earth if our primary metaphor is, like, a mother-child relationship? Right. My mom works in consent education here in the Midwest, and they have frequently criticized the giving tree for the way it teaches us about consent in non-sexual relationships, specifically like the parent-child dynamic, the way that the mother gives up her entire selfhood for the future generation. With every age group, the narratives about nature have these threads of, you know, maternal guilt and owing things to the planet. Like a stewardship in general is is a lot like we should take care of the earth as if it's aging, losing... Um, it's vitality. Yeah, it's vitality. I don't really quite know how to explain it. I think. Well, I think you can just like go back to our last episode yeah. and skip to the part about Olivia Soprano. Yes, right, exactly. Right. And just, just kind of, you know, we'll insert that right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the giving tree. Yeah. <laughs> like, I gave my children my life on a silver platter. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so ironic also because it's like, 
if that fucking methodology worked, then the quote-unquote American family system wouldn't be in such shambles. Like, all these yeah. poor old people are, like, facing the reality of, like, a nursing home lifestyle. Yeah. And then even that becomes more and more untenable for younger people as they look towards what aging will be like for them. So I think it is a really, really... And, and you guys know how I am about woo-woo shit. Like, I really, I can't do it. I don't find it entertaining. <laughs> My biggest fear going into this episode was that even after I had done research and I had really, really tried to engage with this mode of thought, that I would not be able to take it seriously. But I think despite, or maybe because of the absurdity that is inherent in treating the world as a lover or the earth as a lover that really is the strength of this kind of thinking because it is so unique and it's so fresh and at least what came to mind for me was a lot of i actually think i might have talked about this in our first episode so yet another callback about um, old sufi poetry and how there is a lot of conceiving of god as the beloved and so a lot of poems will seemingly be addressed to the beloved, but they're really being, you know, a spiritual and trying to examine like the transcendence of the relationship. And pleasure as something that you can center in your life will bring you closer to God instead of being like an ascetic or someone that's very like austere. That really was able to, I think, make that mind connection stronger for me and helped me understand also why it is so controversial because a lot of people to them that is woo-woo shit so yeah i have been listening to interviews with annie and beth in preparation for this episode and one thing that i think beth said was that yeah you you do sound crazy talking about this stuff like we don't have vocabulary to talk about the world in this way so you are gonna sound crazy another way that their performance art has manifested is in marriages to different parts of the earth so they've married mountain ranges and different lakes and one time they married all the brine shrimp in a salt lake like it's very absurdist behavior it's like yeah. school school grade-ish in a way like the whole like well, if you love the earth so much, why don't you just marry it? And it kind of yeah. takes this sense of like tree hugger as a derogatory right. term and say like, okay, well, why not then? Exactly. That's how I think of it too. I was actually first introduced to the idea of ecosexuality by beloved friend of the pod, Trevor, who should we just name, like fully name drop Trevor so people can read their work, read their work. Yeah. Trevor Bashaw is like an excellent poet thinker of the times honestly genuinely like watch watch this space watch that name yeah trevor's done a lot of work with eco poetics i've had the pleasure of being their friend for a few years now and i, I was first introduced to ecosexuality through trevor's own writing and i think at the time i could really only access it through several layers of irony because part of what makes ecosexuality so hard to swallow for a lot of people is that it's very gay. It yeah. just has kind of a gay vibe to it. And so it, it makes me think of Trevor's pet name, which I I don't know. Wormo. Wormo. Oh, Wormo. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is also, I believe, like one of, uh, I remember seeing in like the KU literary journal, like where people are taking themselves so damn seriously. Uh, no hate though. Love you, kiosk. Um, <laughs> seeing, kiosk. Kiosk. <laughs> kiosk can suck my dick. Um, there's... Like a poem, like on like the very next page by Wormo. Yeah, and it's awesome, and it's so yeah. different, and it's very ecosexual, and like yeah, you have to engage with it with layers of irony. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I would argue that maybe it's time to shed some of those layers of irony because so much of contemporary discourse about like what are we to do about the apocalypse 
what are we to do about living in this world in general involves people dissecting like, well, how sincere should we be? How ironic should we be? How humorous? How austere? How nihilist? Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I mean, the danger is there is so much doomer pilling in pretty much every social movement. And I think I see that so much in like leftist political and like anti-capitalist movements online. I would hate to see that overrun ecological spaces because these wonderful ecosexual or ecofeminist or whatever label these people decide on for themselves um, that I meet, like they are so in love with the world and they really, really live, breathe, sleep, eat that shit. And I think that genuineness and that sincerity is a really special thing that I see in this movement. And yeah, like maybe that's woo-woo to people who like to get online and talk about how like it's so over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. But you know, we must also be back. It is really important when we're talking about ecosexuality to understand that love is inherently a part of it. Like Mm -hmm. it's asking us to consider sex and love not synonymous, but related. And in the increasing discourse about the like micro genres of sexual and gender identity labels, however you may fall on the spectrum of that conversation, it's important to think about all of them in relation to each other. The ecology of identity. There's actually a quote from this book called The Overstory that I want to read. Have either of you read this book? <laughs> it won some awards or whatever. It's it's a an acclaimed book by Richard Powers, mm-hmm. and it's about five, six, seven different trees and their relationships with different families. It's this really massive, ambitious novel. But there's this quote that I think encapsulates a lot of what ecosexuality is trying to tell us. There are a hundred thousand species of love separately invented, each more ingenious than the last, and every one of them keeps making things. I really appreciate how that talks about love and sex and procreation and like the idea that being creative and artistic is inherent to loving each other and hoping for the future. I mean, it, right. it's hard because it really does sound so woo-woo, but like... But it's it's such a, like, Rip Wall Whitman, you would have loved this yeah. quote. And I think I say that with, like, the highest praise. Like, I think it is so special to be able to love the world bombastically. That's a great word for it. Yeah, yeah I think ecosexuality is thinking critically about the directive that we've received to love the planet. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to love the planet. It's not like wearing a cutesy recycling shirt from the Gap, which like I'm pretty sure the fashion industry is the second most massive polluter yeah. after yeah. probably the military or gas or, or oil or something. Oil, yeah. yeah. I mean that and it's like, you know, it's not a fucking Dawn ad and it's not, you know, um, it's not a lobbying group either. I it's like know. what is your relationship with the earth? Yeah. Your Yeah. Yeah. And our. And our. And, and relationship. relationship. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's the mushrooms, the rhizomes. Yeah, okay, well, speaking of mushrooms. So Anna Singh wrote The Mushroom at the End of the World, uh, which is like a really, really phenomenal book in the area of ecology. So I don't know. I, I won't explain too much about it just because I think it's something that deserves to be read and engaged with that way. In this article by Donna Haraway, who also is you know, famously the writer of the Cyborg Manifesto and talks about cyborgs and the Anthropocene and stuff. She also reaches back out to Anna Singh, who, 
you know, does a lot of thinking about these mushrooms, does a lot of thinking about like rhizomic relations between beings and how that ties back into this idea of relationality with all beings, right? And one way that I love that Donna Harry tied all this together is by saying, I am a compostist, not a posthumanist. We are all compost, not posthuman. And I really... <laughs> That's so good. I like that. I, it's so yeah. good because it kind of puts a chill down my back when I think about someday becoming compost, you know? But as sobering as it is, it is also beautiful to conceive of yourself as part of the same compost that, you know, someday my cat will be a part of, someday like all the plants and animals around me will be. And it's also realistic. When we lose sight of the fact that we too are animals in this world, and we too are creatures that will return into the world that we live in, then you can live such an artificial life. And I don't mean that in like the kids are always on their damn phones these days way, but genuinely like there is a way you can live now where you are so removed from the reality of being a part of nature. And I don't really know how to articulate that better, but I think ecosexuality made me more aware of bringing that in that quality back into my life as I literally live in a high-rise building surrounded by other high-rise buildings, you know, in a city. This is making me think of that piece of advice my mom gave me. I think I shared it with the both of you like a couple months back about, and this is a quote that she stole from somebody else, but how one should strive to live a life that is worth dying from. Mm -hmm. And I don't really want to die from not caring. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to die from, I don't know, caring from caring <laughs> from loving yeah. too hard. From living too hard, and I think when we remind ourselves that you know, the woo woo bullshit of when we die, we become a part of the world. It's like, well, how do you want to do that? And what and, sort and of world do you want to become a part of? When it you is, die? it is, it is nearly the point. You know, yes, when you die, you will literally, um, you know become a part of the world as in you will turn into some kind of soil but you're actually part of the world already you can just choose to not make that a part of your own reality but i think the more i dive into ecosexual thought i'm trying to think about myself as a part of the world right now and not just in a human to human relation thing which i think a lot of people who i love and care about and are like trying to work on themselves like that is one easy area to do so right it's like my relations to other people but just as important as that is your relation to the planet, to the animals around you, to the plants around you. This is reminding me of something that um, one of my yoga teachers was talking about. And she was talking about the importance of breath in yoga. And like, okay, so why why the breath? Like, why is that one of the most important things in the practice? Why is it like one of eight limbs? Like, it takes up a whole limb of yoga. What do you mean by limb? So I think limb is kind of like a weird translation of a Sanskrit word, but in yoga there are eight different limbs that make up the practice. Okay. And Could then, you maybe just give me an example? Of yeah, so like one limb is asana, which is the poses, mm-hmm. and another limb is pranayama, which is the breath, and then there's a bunch of other stuff that have to do with meditation and focus and controlling your senses and then eventually enlightenment. But she was talking about the importance of breath. And in order to illustrate it, she was talking about why do you identify with your body? Your body is not the same body that you had when you were a kid. Like, your body continues to change throughout your entire life. 
so what is it about you that remains constant? What can you always connect with? And it is your breath. When you are something as base and as heavily exchanged as breath, then you can much more easily conceptualize how you are the wind and you are wind that erodes the soil and you are the water that carries the soil down the river and deposits it somewhere else. And so you can kind of begin to decouple yourself or maybe couple, couple yeah. yourself yeah, with, with the become world. Enchained, I think, in a series yeah. of events and processes. I don't know. I feel like Donna Haraway would both love and hate that. And, you know, she's never going to listen to this podcast, so I can go <laughs> ahead and... <laughs> I'm really enchanted by that because I think it speaks to something that I have been thinking about a lot these past few years. For a while, I thought maybe who you are is an identity, that there's some sort of core self. But the more I interrogate that, the flimsier it becomes. And mm-hmm. yeah, you are defined by what you do, which seems kind of boring or obvious. But if you focus on vitality being in behavior or in action, then you're right. It, it connects you to every other thing that behaves or exists actively. What that made me think of is I've been friends with... Um, my, my dear bestie Sydney for quite some time. And one thing that we had been talking about recently is like, if you had gone back to when we were first starting to get close our freshman year of college and told her like, hey, in a few years, like, are we just gonna have a pet cat? And she's really, really gonna love her pet cat. She would have thought that was the most insane thing ever because I had never had a pet. I really didn't understand the concept of having an animal in your house and was mostly grossed out by it, to be honest. And now my cat is literally sleeping a foot away from me. She was just, I think, so moved by that because what she was trying to express to me was like, you are the rouge that I love and that I've loved for all those years. And yet something that seems so quote unquote fundamental about you, like you are not a pet person, has changed and... Yet there is a constancy in you. I don't know. I think that's a very interesting thing to get into is like what is identity and what remains static in a human or in consciousness over time. I think that ties well into ecosexuality because one of the questions I had going into this and one of the things that makes me cautious about being an ecosexual is like how do we love, I think you use the word of rouge, terrorized landscape how do we love a world post-disaster in the, or in the midst of disaster i think i still struggle with that like i don't know if there is a particular answer i mean i'm thinking a lot about the article that we both just read the eco poetics of contact by sarah enzer there's not going to be a way that i can explain the breadth of the article but i will try um So Enzer's main idea in relation to ecology is this intransitive mode of being or behaving. And intransitive in the sense that your behavior is not directed at any one object. It's just behavior that exists and is protracted and expands out and around and through space. She investigates this concept through three different texts. One of them being a Wordsworth poem entitled Nutting. 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 
and another one of them being a text about cruising in New York City called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel R. Delaney. And then the final text that she investigates is Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I, which is a documentary about a group of, or a, a transient community in France who glean fields, which means just coming in after a harvest and gathering all that is left. And that is both the crop and other sort of fossils of the Anthropocene. She combines these three texts to support the idea of intransitive behavior as an ecosexual act or an ecopoetic act, rather. Because you accept the possibility of disaster, you also can then conceptualize or believe in the possibility of beauty or positive surprise or exhilaration or something like that. What you said really just touched me because... I love this idea of a positive disaster and positive, not necessarily like good or bad, but adding something and how throughout the history of the planet, we have seen so many large scale disasters that resulted in a completely new world. Yeah. And it makes me think a lot about relationships and how people will talk about being too scared to enter into one because they're afraid of the disaster of it ending. Which it's so, I mean, that's just very ecosexual. Yeah. Um, the idea of you're in a relationship with the earth and it's going to be disastrous. It's going to end, whether because you die or because the earth dies or whatever. It, it'll the pockets have, of the yeah. earth that die yeah. may affect you more directly. Yes. You know, I think one thing that this brings up for me is so much of a decolonial right lens of looking at ecology. So when you said a new world, I think one thing that immediately came to mind was a lot of people don't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate this until I had a professor take the time to really make this sink in for us, was that the smallpox epidemic, when it came to the Americas, decimated the population. And if you look at the word decimate from an etymological standpoint, that means that there was a flourishing civilization that was reduced to a tenth. So 90% of those people were gone by the end. I mean, that is a massive devastating loss. It massively changes entire civilizations, entire structures of farming and living and interacting with animals. If we're looking at like, even just from like the simple food chain perspective of like less hunters, less environmental disruption. Wait, when you're talking about the smallpox epidemic, do you mean like the biological weapon that they used as like a genocide? Yes, or or, I mean, maybe to some extent intentional, like giving indigenous people smallpox blankets, but also specifically the Spanish coming over to what is now South America, Okay, like 1400s. And at that time, it was not so intentional. It was just these people had never encountered this disease before. And it was a devastating loss. And so I think when I when I sat with that idea of like 90% of those people were gone, Um, and how that must have changed that entire landscape, it really made me think of the idea of the world ending and climate change and climate disaster and climate catastrophe. Because for colonized peoples, and this is the point that that professor is helping us get to, the world has ended and continues to end in a lot of different iterations with a lot of different approaches to overtaking that colonial space. 
we have a episode in the vault that we had worked on about fishing. And I did a lot of research about indigenous laws about fishing and hunting. And specifically how when colonial governments established these fishing and hunting laws, they literally erase massive parts of culture. Because now these communities that are based around fishing, based around hunting, can't, you know, hit the quota that they need to be able to pass on these practices to their youth. And that is an active process of destruction as well. And so I think when I originally used that word when we were talking about this, of terrorized landscape, I think it's global warming's horror is engaged with in a very abstract way. And I wish that we brought things closer. I'm gesturing, which isn't translating well to the, the medium, but like literally like the way that when I move my hand closer to my face, I both obscure it and I bring it into a sharper focus. I think that is something that can be really, really useful with thinking about the world in an ecosexual way, is literally engaging with the fact that there is destruction around me all the time, but that creates a new world simultaneously. The fact that destruction can be a positivist process, and from destruction we can create, and that we're not doomed to destroy and destroy and destroy until there's nothing left breaking through that concept can be so useful because people hate the nihilism, I think, of thinking about climate. I'm thinking a lot about Christian ideas of disaster, mm-hmm. which are usually based on this idea that it's coming and it'll be global and simultaneous, and that is the end. Um, Unless you're one of the chosen few. Which I'm not, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Um, uh, I am. <laughs> and how I'm a child of God. <laughs> That, that idea is related to the other Christian school of thought about, well, in the meantime, we need to restrain and retain mm-hmm. and be pure. <laughs> no, but quite literally, like, because, yeah. like, you need to not be a hedonistic, like, yes. disgusting person. In, in and so fact, can, your hedonism actually accelerates the apocalypse. Yes. I see a lot of that in the doomer-pilled eco-critical movements where it's like, oh, well, global warming is coming and like you need to stop being so fucking sinful lest it arrives sooner. A lot of people who live in, you know, like the United States are on Twitter like talking about this yeah. shit of like criticizing other leftists or other like people in ecological schools of Right, like like in a way, fuck you, what do you mean climate change is coming? Yeah. We've seen the elaborate disruption of weather patterns already here. Right in a way that can be sometimes uncomfortable for Americans, but like I think all the time about South Asia and how it is right by the equator, that belt in Africa that is right by the equator, they are already feeling summers that are almost inhospitable to human life, to animal life, to plants. Bitches want to get online and virtue signal about buying sheen. And I feel kind of like I'm strawmanning these people slightly, but I'm doing it to make my point, and I apologize. <laughs> a lot of times the way we talk about climate change in the American discourse is the things that are happening are the plagues signaling the incoming apocalypse. The storm is not necessarily climate change itself. It is like signaling the worst thing that's going to happen later. It's just a horseman. If we view all of these things as simultaneous in a different way as an exchange like disaster is an exchange in the way that breath is it makes me feel 
absolutely 100% more hopeful that I can do things and that right. I can have a positive relationship with my environment. You you can have an impact on the world that is not negative, you know? Yeah. And I think for some people, like, that is a very, like, revolutionary idea. Because, like you said, like, there's so much of this, like, Christian guilt almost wrapped up into it. To be a good little pro-environmentalist, you must feel guilty for existing, for having and driving a car, for, you know, using um, baby oil, like, whatever the fuck, you know? Like, what if there is ethical consumption under late-stage capitalism? Right. And what if that consumption is going out and, like, buying plant seeds? Or, like, I don't know, that's not quite right. Or, like, consumption that is not necessarily achieved through financial means like yes. consumption as in sex you know what yeah, yeah. or breathing or, yeah sex or breathing or we did a not like pod specific activity but molly helped us get out there in nature and positively engage with the world by thinking about fucking invasive species it was really cool to learn about honeysuckle and to be out there and think about my relationship to plants and when these honeysuckle species got here and how extensively they've been able to grow and the act of us getting in there and cutting them back being a positive effect for the rest of the environment that is a local plant species. Versus if you're thinking about it on the strictest sense of like, no, I must go stay home and recycle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes going out and cutting a plant is a positive impact. Knowing about invasive species comes from a deepened understanding of where you are and what grows where you are. One of the best ways to start feeling at home somewhere is to figure out what grows here. One idea that is super highly related to ecosexuality is the idea of animism. And that being the belief that everything is alive, has a soul, has feelings. Objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. Um, And I was originally kind of nervous to talk about this because though animism as a belief system is a kind of this wonderful old thing, the word animism has also been levied against the cultures that practice it as a sort of indictment or condemnation or even as a way to patronize those cultures. I think sometimes animism is regarded with this sort of primitive assumption Mm -hmm. that it is like not something we do in the modern world or that it's antiquated and it's like something you believe in and it's not necessarily true. Right. I mean, it's deeply ironic because it's absurd to believe that a tree has a spirit or a life force, but not absurd to be like, this ship is a girl and she's my wife <laughs> and I'm a sailor. And like, I'm fucking other men on her. <laughs> exactly. That is a That would not be a type of animism, even though there is a relationality there. I think because it is, in my mind at least, a fundamentally a practice that is distinct from colonized cultures or sorry colonizing cultures my reference point for animism is primarily my grandmother she immigrated from the philippines and i want to say like late 60s early 70s i can never remember she grew up mostly raised by her grandmother who was 
sort of an indigenous herbalist. So my grandma has a pretty great wealth of knowledge about the things she grew up around. The anecdote I always think of about my grandma and her relationship with animism is she has this really spectacular garden at her house here in the Midwest. And she grows a lot of plants that are native to Kansas, but also native to the Philippines. To keep her garden nice and rich, she employs a lot of worms. And I remember there was this one time I walked over and she was on the sidewalk. I asked her what she was doing. She was like kneeling on the sidewalk. And she was like, oh, I'm saving my God. She said it this very matter-of-fact way. Keep in mind, listener, my grandma is extremely atheist. Like, she has <laughs> major qualms with Christianity. But she was picking up worms and putting them back into the dirt. And it was that she recognized that their vitality and what they can do for her and for the plants around her was equivalent to a level of godliness. Through the collective efforts of all of these creatures and their vitality um, existing in relation to each other, you achieve what is equivalent to a god. It reminds me of the idea of breath, and that's just a way to get closer to the idea that you are not separate from the world you're living in. There's a guy named Martin Buber. <laughs> Buber? Yeah. Can you spell that for me? <laughs> B-U-B-E-R. Okay. I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it... Buber. <laughs> Buber. Funny a name as he has, uh, has this idea of God as the eternal thou, and uses this word thou to relate it, I guess relate is a word that we're going to keep using over and over, but um, humans are defined by two word pairs, I and it, and I and thou. And so in this situation, your grandma Gabe was adopting an I and thou perspective, where she, the I, was in relation with thou, the worm, or the eternal thou, God. Whereas I and it, not to call out anyone, but when you are jamming a worm on a hook, sometimes that can be an I-it situation. Yeah. <laughs> like you're making it object. Yes. You are saying yeah. it's worth sacrifice. I mean, we have to sacrifice certain things. And there are ways to fish and, that aren't, you know. Yeah. But there's a huge difference between taking the worm and like in my grandma's case, she would quite literally say, thank you out loud. Like I recognize what you are about to do for me, mm -hmm. ideally. And then buying a bunch of worms, keeping them in a horrific I, I little plastic tub and then not really thinking about the fact that you are killing it. Yeah. yeah. There's a difference in, I think, utilization and cooperation that's going on there. Like your grandma is not only cooperating with that worm to bring her plants to this like beautiful lush state, but also in a way submitting to it. I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, the, the pod's favorite religion by default is Islam. Because <laughs> I'm always talking about it. I can't wait to convert. No, literally, I can't wait to have you, babe. <laughs> um, a big component of the translation of the word Islam is that it comes from the root to submit. Um, and so when you're engaging with a higher power or any being, and this isn't unique to Islam, right? It could be in the context of animism. I think it's so special to stop and submit yourself to that power, to that being. And uniquely humbling when you're submitting yourself to the power of a worm or a rock or a beautiful stream. Um, and even doing so outside of what something can do for you. I think that idea of submitting or humbling oneself or emptying oneself out to then be filled by yes. what 
exists around you that is highly related to an idea I've been thinking about. And the place where I learned about the I-Thou relationship and Martin Buber um, is from a book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. This book is basically like dissecting the attention economy and, and how we tend to give our attention or how our attention tends to be taken from us. And a lot of this book is about divesting from the attention economy and investing in the natural world. So she has this concept of bioregionalism, which is basically just learning very much about where you live and what grows there, as I said before. And one way that she practices this bioregionalism in her home of California is through bird watching, which is one of my favorite activities. It's a submissive practice. You're letting daddy nature dom you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can go out into the world and you can go on a walk and you don't have to notice anything. Mm-hmm. But the minute that you do start noticing things is the minute when you stop trying to exact your will on the, on the space around you. You're doing the intransitiveness. Exactly. You are, you are acting and being acted upon instead of just moving through the world like a knife. Right. So when you stop and begin to listen to the sounds that you previously tuned out, you begin to notice the way that each one of your steps causes sound to reverberate in the environment. You notice that not so far away you can hear the interstate. You also begin to notice birdsong. And then you begin to notice different types of birdsong. And then you start getting really invested in figuring out what birds are there, when, where, why, what time of year, like what are they eating, like which birds are interacting with each other and which are eating each other. Like (laughs) it's an absolute trip and that's just the birds. Because then you can start noticing all the plants around you. There's a whole other freaking universe. When we did the honeysuckle project, we removed the invasive species. And to do that, we had to learn how to identify bush honeysuckle. So in doing that, then I began to recognize bush honeysuckle everywhere. And it wasn't just a wall of greenery. Like Then I began to notice the species that are around me and the organisms that are living and the effect that they're having on the organisms around them. I don't know, it reminds me a lot of meditation as well, like Mm -hmm. the way that you slowly tune, by slowly tuning out, you were able to tune in. And I don't know, like we're we're used to experiencing the world at a certain frequency, but there are so many places you can dial into if you allow yourself to. You know when you first feel an attraction to somebody? Let's take the classic example of you see someone across the room and you develop an instantaneous, beautiful self-consciousness about what you look like, how you're behaving, what your body is doing, and also at the same time, a a consciousness for them of how they are behaving, because you are struck with an awe of the completeness of their self and the way it's interacting with the same environment that you're in. That's what it makes me think of. The wondrous experience of having a crush Mm -hmm. and that period of observation when you first start to sink into the attraction you have for somebody else. It's not even necessarily a courtship of them, but the period of courtship in which you are noticing the world to a degree that you haven't been. I love hearing you talk about prior to you touching your environment, noticing it Mm -hmm. and like familiarizing yourself with it and becoming literate with it, like this anticipation you feel to becoming a part of the world. I think you can have that so many times over and over again, whether you're in the same place or not of like, oh, I'm in this environment. Let me take stock of where I am, and then I can re-enter. I can dive back into being alive. 
That just made me realize, like, birds being something that I pay so much attention to and think about so much. I've never touched one. I think the only time I've ever touched one was uh, after it had died and been collected and put into plastic bags and then frozen for a research project, and I got to hold it then. But that was, like, mediated through so many layers of, of plastic. But yeah, I'm just like, whoa, like, I've... I don't really know what birds mm. feel like. That's beautiful, though, because you can experience it in so many ways beyond just the tactile. What could be a more full-body experience than being so intimately aware of the way birds sound? Yeah. Like, that is also deeply embodied. And I think the, the crush metaphor and comparison is so perfect because whenever I have a crush, I always feel like I am living life in 4K, Ultra HD, Colors are brighter, sounds are louder. It's just a very, very heightened mode of existence. And I think a big part of that is because you are more attuned to the world around you. Like you said, that's why it keeps coming back to the sexuality part of ecosexuality. Is like, if you can engage in relationality with the world, there is a possibility of seeing it like that a lot of the time. Everybody literally needs to go read Wild Geese by Mary Oliver right now and understand that the geese that you hear flying overhead this winter, going south, they are announcing your place in the world of things. Yeah. This kind of brings me to back to animism, because when we first discussed the complaint against ecosexuality, that it might be in some cases appropriative, or rather it has been appropriative, and there is an active movement to make it not so. I started thinking about like, well, what is the difference between anthropomorphism and animism? And is there a way to make them indistinguishable from each other? Because ideally, if you go through the world thinking of the human as an animal, then is that not animism? In some cases, people think of anthropomorphism in relation to climate change as harmful, where it's like, well, it's reductive to think of the earth as a human or like animals as humans, but like there are so many cultures throughout time that have done that and had comparatively more positive and healthy relationships with their environments. Absolutely. Like if you treat a human well, then it is okay to treat the world like a human. Maybe that is the fear is that yeah. if you treat humans poorly, then why would I want to compare the earth to that? Because that would encourage destructive relation. I mean, it also makes me think of the Anthropocene and how a lot of the times, like people, Donna Haraway, one of them, will write about the world as in the age of the Anthropocene. And then that front prefix can be exchanged for other things like the Cthulhuocene, uh, the Capitalocene, um, a lot of different ways of conceiving of, I don't know, not the end times, but the global warming times. This is not a fully formed thought yet, but when you were asking, Gabe, what's the difference or can the two be extricated between animism and anthropomorphism, I started to think, well, maybe anthropomorphism is when you don't respect a non-human entity enough to believe that they could have any other reaction other than a human one. And animism is when you respect a non-human enough to believe that they could have human yeah like that's like directly contraindicated but like to use a term do you understand the idea of a life force or consciousness or autonomy as extant only in human beings if that is the way that you understand it then you kind of have to conceive of the earth as a humanoid being to be able to care for it to be able to live in harmony with it or at the very least 
live with it. That is, I think, the beauty of animism is saying, why would only human beings have access to a concept such as life force? Why would that not be a universal thing? And I, I fuck with the tubby. I like it. So for this episode, because we love to have our piece of media, we watched Stranger by the Lake, a 2013 film by director Alain Giraudy. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this song and be like, your accent. Shit, Molly. Oh <laughs> it's okay. The French are well, we don't have any French listeners. <laughs> no, no, right? No, Madeline's gonna more ass. Oh, you're right. Oh, that's true. Oh no, I would hate if that Madeline, happened. I'm so- <laughs> <laughs> Madeline, I'm so sorry. I'm on that Duolingo. I'm trying my best, queen. So we follow our main character, Franck, who is a young gay man in, I think, what is it, 90s? Like early 90s? The setting of the time period is slightly vague, partially because it entirely takes place outside, next to this lake, this kind of summery vacation lake. Um, we follow Franck as he revisits this cruising beach, this nude, I think it's specifically a gay cruising beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has trysts with different strangers by the lake. He eventually develops a friendship with this middle-aged man named Henri. He's real Henri. He's a little, a little bit, yeah. He's coming into his bisexuality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a He has some amazing by discourse going on. I love the yeah. way that Henri talks about what same gender versus other gender sex means to him. He's doing some Tumblr level discourse, so it's fucking awesome. Yes. And he's a little delusional too. He is under the delusion that there aren't very many gay men who only sleep with other men. He thinks that there are yeah. gay men who have, most men who sleep with men have wives or girlfriends that they're leaving at home. He keeps asking, like, so do you have a girlfriend? Do you have a wife? I, I mean, and that Literally is a, while Frank's dick is out. His balls yeah. and his foreskin are staring <laughs> at us. It's so interesting because I think the premise of the movie really is, like, who do you go home to, even though we never really see anyone's home? That question is driving a lot of action in the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there is a third character that's pretty relevant. Yeah, Frank from- is kind of interested in this sexy, classically attractive man named Michel. And the more Franck and Michelle become intertwined, the more kind of dark aspects of the community and of their characters come out. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't... We can spoil it when it's necessary. But yes. that's, that's our yes. starting point. That's the structure. Um, and so I think we should talk a little bit about cruising for those who are not uh, entirely aware of what that is. I think not everyone is familiar with the term talked a little bit about it earlier in reference to Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Mm-hmm. Cruising is a way of encountering other people who are DTF, and it's a practice that is very culturally meaningful, I think, to gay men. I've kind of learned of it in the U.S. context primarily, but uh, this film did a really good job of showing it kind of in nature. And I know Gabe provided some really interesting considerations for us going into the film about the concept of desire paths. So naturally, we thought this was like a very egosexual film 
I also had seen the movie before, uh, but I had seen it a few years prior, so kind of the only impression that remained with me was just a lot of bare asses touching really stony, gravelly beaches and naked flesh rubbing against reeds and long grass. And so I was like, something tells me this would be a helpful addition to our discussion today. And it was delightful. And the number of times we should have, that would be a fun drinking game, is like take a shot every time you're like, damn, they're sitting bare ass on those rocks. When I read about this movie briefly, and kind of anytime I read about a film that's about specifically gay men, the word shocking gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. Usually because it's like, oh, there's like penis on mm-hmm. screen. I didn't find it that shocking to look at a dick. It seemed like one of the goals within the movie was to make the viewer feel like they were a part of this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is shot kind of as if you were sitting next to them or in front of them. Mm-hmm. Or if you were peering at them from behind some trees. Yes. Mm-hmm. Y- you get the sense that the camera is a voyeur. Is a voyeur is doing some peeping. I mean, it was remarkably tender while also being very sexually electric, right? I feel like a lot of times, like, those kind of elements of storytelling get, like, separated in American movies where, like, if we're going to depict a tryst, like, are we going to make it sexy or are we going to make it romantic? And I feel like this did a good job with both of those. And I know that we hinted at this, but there's a very central theme in here is that eventually one of the men that frequents this beach is found in the lake like his body is found in the lake and there is a series of investigations that begin and they're trying to figure out whether it was accidental whether there was some kind of foul play involved and so at the same time as getting all these like beautiful shots of the lake and nature and the relationships unfolding between these men you have this undercurrent of violence and fear and the way that people are responding to that fear and distrust and distrust I think it's also an important aspect of the movie that you see the murder when it happens, and so you know who's responsible. So it's not necessarily It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. It's not about finding out who did it. It's about finding out what happens after something like that occurs. And the perspectives people have about the behavior. So, like, there is this stereotypically straight inspector, and he's just, like, you know, shocked that the men are coming back to the beach still. There's obviously like a period of time where it's like less densely populated, but people are still coming back to cruise and to sit out on the beach and enjoy that space. And he's genuinely shocked that people are coming back to the site of a murder and not even necessarily in a homophobic way. If anything, he's like, you know, where is your self-preservation? What if there was a homophobic serial killer on the loose? There's very much this theme of like, how can you be hard at a time like this? Yeah. Which makes me think of our earlier discussion. <laughs> of what like, I said to you. <laughs> how could you be hard at yeah. an academic moment no, like this? I mean, yeah, just this dichotomy of the doomer pillar. Yeah. Doomer, doomer pilled? The doomer pilled versus the, the horn pilled. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where it's like the boner pill versus the doomer pill. <gasps> yes, take the boner you. pill. Take the, wait, that's genius. <laughs> um, because he's very much like, how can you continue to be frivolous and indulgent and sinful in the aftermath of this? But what the detective doesn't understand and what I think a lot of people don't understand is like, being gay is not a frivolity. Like, this is the only way these people are able to access each other is through what seems like a completely absurd setting, which is walking around 
on the beach and in the woods naked and having sex with people whose names you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you've talked a little bit about how gay people are frequently forced into abject spaces mm-hmm. and how cruising is the result of that. In the context of the United States, cruising has existed as kind of as long as gay people have existed because there's not really spaces for us to meet each other and kind of calling back to something we discussed in the previous episode, which is like the angel and the monster. People who are in complicated positions in society often don't have access to the idea of home. And so for gay men specifically, it was expected that they would go find each other outdoors or in bathrooms in these very abject areas where like maybe you would only let an animal fuck outside and gay men are animals so it makes sense that they go there. And some of the most beautiful sequences in the movie are these men moving around this really tall grassy field between trees and each other and communicating almost entirely non-verbally. Part of cruising is signaling with body language. I think usually it's like you make eye contact and then you'll kind of grope yourself slightly. So it's plausibly deniable, like maybe you're just scratching your nuts. Um, (laughs) But if the other guy's interested, they'll follow you and, you know, you go about your business. But yeah, I really loved those scenes because they were just such a perfect kind of demonstration of a very specific culture that is inherently ecosexual. Yeah, any culture that has its own shorthand especially a shorthand that is non-verbal, like that's a community that is in relation with each other. You have to be to communicate in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The understanding, I think, was so beautiful. There is one recurring character who is just constantly testing boundaries and is never really going to get to fuck Frank, but keeps trying. Eric. Yeah. Is that what yeah. his name? Oh, yeah. Eric. And Frank is like, I guess, so kind to him. We also talked about how much rejection was built into like the setup of cruising and how unique that was. The movie was very much an ethnography and there's multiple central conflicts and obviously there's the interpersonal one of spoilers, like Michelle is the murderer and Frank is having to deal with that, deciding whether he wants to be with a man who's capable of such violence. But there's also the conflict of like these men are at odds with society. Mm-hmm. But they find so much refuge in each other and in the natural setting of the lake and the shore. There's a very important scene where Frank is about to hook up with another man and he's about to go down on him and the man stops him wanting to use a condom. And it's funny because he's like, what, you don't have a condom? He's like, no, I've used all mine. Do you have a condom? No. Yeah. Oh, well... <laughs> I had too much sex, I don't have any more condoms. And then- But the the man is shocked or sort of in disbelief that Frank would be so comfortable having anonymous sex without protection. And he asks him, well, do you just trust everyone you meet? You trust a stranger you meet out here? Because what he specifically says is, it's okay, I trust you. And then the stranger replies, do you trust everyone? That is as close as we get to referencing HIV and AIDS, I think, in the entire film which is very masterfully done and also speaks to that like undercurrent of trust and violence and reaching out to strangers that you see throughout the film. To have like the literal murder also be a catalyst to all this is really, really powerful. But there is this sense among the men too that like, you know, whatever we do is inherently dangerous because we are ostracized by society. So in the article by Sarah Ensor that I was briefly summarizing earlier, 
she's talking about Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, and Delaney's account of cruising in New York. And what Delaney is highlighting is this pleasant surprise that participants of cruising open themselves up to. There's a quote that I want to read. Delaney's emphasis on pleasant surprise is intertwined with an attention to exposure, damage, and risk, like the risk of HIV and AIDS. Such a confluence may serve to reposition ecological discourse in a less paranoid relationship to risk. When we relinquish a certain insistence upon management and control, we acknowledge our exposure not only to danger and harm, but also to hope, possibility, and affinity. So I think therein lies the connection to a more eco-sexual approach to ecology or conservation or global warming or being with the world. Because you acknowledge the fact that the danger is there, you may also acknowledge the chance that you might encounter something beautiful. It's not even just the chance of exposing yourself to the massive danger of HIV AIDS, but also the discomfort of laying on a rock mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like getting some sand in your butt. Yeah. The um Do yeah, ticks and hookworm <laughs> yeah. all of the other things I was thinking about the whole time. <laughs> so much about sex that is sterilized mm-hmm. and people think of cruising as kind of absurd like why would you want to fuck in these disgusting places but like that's nature like that's the planet that's outdoors people were fucking out there forever and they still do do. cave people did yeah people today still fuck outdoors like regardless of whether they're gay or straight or even those damn bisexuals like they're having sex (laughs) outside those aren't really you know no one's ever seen one i mean yeah ends are calling this openness to being touched or touching like moving through the world is cruising or as an egosexual or both it is an ethos of contact it is neither good nor bad but the fact that you are operating in a mode where you open yourself up to that that is where real possibilities are actualized this is all reminding me so much of heidegger martin heidegger the german philosopher who writes a lot about ontology and being and this idea of being in the world is a surprisingly ecosexual, I guess, like mode of thought. Because we keep coming back to this idea of existing among the world and not simply behaving as if you are the only actor in it. You will always be acted upon, too. Yeah, there's like an interesting Lincoln build there. Although, like notably, Heideggerian philosophy is critiqued for being the fascists were all like very big fans of Jack. I was gonna say, wasn't he kind of a Nazi? Yeah, he was kind of a Nazi. So I was like, it's very interesting to see the echoes between these two wow. ways of being. Multitudes. Multitudes. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think any fascist ideology is going to be very preoccupied with the degree to which you can resist contamination. Mm-hmm. And ecosexuality is all about saying, hey, like, maybe it's not contamination. Maybe this, it's not the end if, That's you, good if you touch something. That's good, good dirt. dirt. <laughs> and you need to rub your dick in it. Yeah. That's something that I think we talked about off mic a couple times. It's like, this is the episode in which we say, it is okay to wish yes. to put your dick in this. this Fine. The- How many different ways can you put your dick yes. in this? Yeah. this? This episode is all about thinking with your penis. Yeah. Right? I don't know. <laughs> and like, I, I, now that I think about being in the world, and there's like ways in which like Nietzschean philosophy can also be Nazi core or whatever. A lot of that I think is tied to this shitty preservationist idea of the world. And it's like, oh, we should be outdoors and preserve its greatness and return to the days of yore. And 
a kind of reconstructionist mode of being in nature. And I think one thing that ecosexuality does beautifully, like we've talked about, is it points to possibility. And possibility is fundamentally like a futuristic kind of way of thinking. I mean, that's why Donahue is writing about cyborgs. That's why everyone's talking about kinship and creation out of the kind of constant cycle of destruction. Making peace with the fact that we cannot go back can be one of the most beautiful things that we can do. I have to keep bringing it back to the article because then there's a whole other section about Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I. That's a movie where Agnes Varda is uh, immersing herself in a community of people who are harvesting things that are in liminal spheres. Like it's the grain after it's been harvested, but before it's been totally like rotted. Um, It's like kind of legal and kind of illegal. It's kind of natural and it's kind of man-made and it's sort of fossils and it's sort of present objects that we encounter every day. The gleaners are really cool. They remind me of the dumpster diving articles that I remember reading in high school English for some reason, I think, because my teacher thought they were super rhetorically rich, which they were. I think that is also a very ecosexual way of being. If you consider the human animal as an animal and a being in the world, then our artifacts are also part of nature. There's this really cool anthropologist named Robin Nagel who does discard anthropology and Mm. she knows so much about trash and refuse and waste and how we discard things and what disposition methods really mean. Like she investigates the value of things. So like that's another rabbit hole you can go down if you want. But in the movie, Varda sort of fixates on this one object that she finds it's a clock with no hands. And it kind of becomes a metonym for the entire ethos of the film, which is to begin to conceptualize things outside of an institutional system of time. And what she gets from that is that there is power in relinquishing the control, much like in cruising when you relinquish the control, like your absolute decisiveness of who you're going to meet, like possibility occurs. I know we talked a little bit about submission earlier, and I want to challenge us even further by saying that submission is almost copping out of relinquishing control. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. submission is the same as relinquishing control Mm -hmm. because relinquishing control is stepping out of the power entirely. And submitting is like acknowledging that you can't step outside of it in that moment. Mm -hmm. Submitting requires acknowledging the power because you are bowing to the power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Relinquishing control would be independent I mean, I think that's why it is so much more interesting is because you are now robbing the power of its power. Yeah. It's almost like, okay, well, now that I don't have this framework anymore, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not nihilism either. It's not like throwing your hands up and saying, oh, well. Yeah. It's absolutely not that. I think that's why I love the eco-sexuality theorists so much is because there is this genuine commitment to writing theory that is doing something new and encouraging possibility and encouraging thinking about the world in a way that is productive and not necessarily just introspective. In a way they are not navel-gazing, they are like, hey, there's a lot of beauty in this world, like no one's denying that, but you know, how do we positively Um, It's like being intransitive, right? Like, if you are acting intransitively, you're still acting. Like, that's a verb. You must act. You're walking, you are waiting, you're waiting, you're... Cruising. Cruising. Yeah, you're you're doing all these things that are in action and beget other action, but don't necessarily act on an object. Like, there's no fixed goal, 
Yeah. Returning just to why I enjoy ecosexuality so much more than I did before I started this episode is that it felt like the first time in a while that I accessed a sense of humor, not through the lens of irony. I think because discourse is like such a thing and everyone has so many opinions, us included, myself especially included, it's hard to not be meta and it's hard to not be reflexive. But like you said, ecosexuality is so futurist if you really commit to it, that it resists irony in this way that I don't feel like I get to see with other movements. And it makes room for a level of vulnerability that kind of, I think anyone can kind of step into, which is why it appeals so much to these um, specific populations. Like, yeah. Bro, it's the soft course. animal of your body. It really I was, fucking I was is. thinking of yeah. that. In, in, in one level, it's like the soft animal of your body. And then on another, it is that joke that I was doing earlier where it's like, do you want to be cringe or do you want to be free? It is such a pure and simple pleasure to touch grass. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like it, there's something uniquely genuine and vulnerable about jumping in a lake, about sitting on a stump, about, about watching a sunset. Watching the rain, badly skipping a rock. Like there's <laughs> so many things that are beautiful. And no one's stopping you. You're I a think huge, is the other thing. No one's awesome. stopping you. And you're a huge asshole if you're going to try to take that joy away from somebody else. Yeah. To return to some of the ideas in the article and anxieties present in the movie, there's this thing that the article talks a bit about critiquing the saying of leave no trace. The movie addresses that command that a lot of populations receive, which is to like leave no trace of yourself, especially you, because you are so sinful or against nature or such an outcast. We don't want to see that you were ever here. Yeah, it's so annoying because that fundamentally suggests that we are not part of nature. Yeah. And so then no wonder people feel so disconnected from it and they're like, the fuck that gotta do with me? Yeah, but they're like, how dare I step into this sacred space? There's more to leaving a trace than, like, picking up your cliff wrapper bar. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about this off mic a few times. Sex toys are a very interesting thing to discuss with all of the things that we've kind of touched on related to ecosexuality thus far. Like, the idea of human-machine dualism with the cyborgs, absurdity even, I think can be really, really encaptured in this one instance. And kind of shows us that we are all more ecosexual than we think. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about how many different kinds of sexual expression are considered absurd. And I would definitely say that even though sex toys of all kinds are probably very common amongst most people's belongings, they're still treated with kind of like a taboo absurdity. Is it Baudrillard who talked about simulacra? And all uh, yes. Shit? Thank you. Because I was just sitting... In my room, thinking about dildos, <laughs> I was just like, the shit is made of fracking byproduct. It's made of silicone and then like petroleum is put on top of it. And this is somehow treated as more sterile than, I don't know, putting your dick in a flower and coming in the flower. Even if you are not going out and seeking transgressive forms of sex or sensual experience, you can maybe defamiliarize yourself with your existing sexual practices and recognize the ways in which they are material. That sounds so pretentious. Right, your your mean, dick has a carbon footprint, essentially. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everything that we perceive to be normal and everything that we perceive to be absurd are all socially constructed. 
Just like a dildo. Just like a dildo. If I brought an alien here and I was like, yeah, we take this, you see this crude oil in the ground that made George W. Bush president? So we use that crude oil and we turn it into a literal, what is it? Like what like we a, thought your dick would look like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, well, like They make alien dildos too, so they they'd do. probably be fine with it. <laughs> they'd be like, that's not what my dick looks that's like. My I actually have a like... cloaca. Yeah. <laughs> First cloaca mention. <laughs> well, I was going to say that the fact that you can literally customize them, like it, it is genuinely absurd. And then we're going to make fun of these two beautiful sweet ladies who want to marry shrimps and lakes and mountains. Yeah. How is what they're doing any sillier than putting, you know... An AI sex robot. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, what is really unnatural here? So in the process of researching for this episode, one theme that we all noticed a ton was the mention of kinship. In particular, there is a term in the indigenous community called all my relations or being with all of your relations. And learning about this was really pivotal because every time somebody's mentioning kinship in an ecosexuality context or in a lot of these like environmentalist things that we've mentioned that aren't necessarily part of the ecosexual school of thought, I've always wondered where does this idea originate from? Because frankly, like you don't get a lot of kinship-based discussion in Western philosophy. And so I thought it was really, really intriguing that this is something that's very heavily borrowed from indigenous culture. And that kinship tie isn't just, you know, not just nuclear family or beyond nuclear family, including grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and further distance relations, but also viewing your relationship with the river nearby your house, with the, you know, your house itself, with the grass outside, the trees, the winds and the animals around you, all of those as being relations that you need to prioritize in your life and really make a foundation of living well is having a harmony in your kinship. If I can interrupt you for a second, I think we have to be very specific and careful here because indigenous is such a blanket term because every place has an indigenous population and this phrase gets attributed to all of them. And I think we need to kind of touch on like, well, why is it attributed to all indigenous people? I was going to say, I think in this context, if we were to be a little bit more specific, one thing that I would say is that this is definitely coalesced under a lot of like indigenous studies, scholars and their work and their programming, like their podcasts and stuff like that. I also do genuinely think that there is a sense of continuity. We know that like there is immense richness in the way familial and social structures vary between all different kinds of indigenous groups. But I think if we want to credit an idea in the same way that we really broadly group things into individualistic versus collectivist societies, if you were to attribute it, then I think it would be fair to say like the idea of kinship comes from a lot of these indigenous models. And yeah, so the reason I I didn't mean to come at you there, but I guess I kind of came at you was because (laughs) I think if we interrogate the idea of what it means to be indigenous, it means that you, your culture and 
actual lineage have material ties to the land that you're in. Yes. And so it's like, well, no wonder that across the board, we see in so many indigenous communities, an idea of relations, because it's like, how else do you maintain a life in a specific space for that long without having a conscientious relationship with your environment and the people around you? And that's how you find, I think, a lot of similarities in spiritual practice, too. And so, like, we do know that there are a lot of animistic religions. Mm -hmm. That is also tied to the same idea of, like, when that is a foundation of your social way of being, it makes sense that it would be a part of your religious way of being as well. When we recommend to take advice from certain communities, it is not a suggestion that they be copied. And Mm -hmm. it is also not a suggestion that their rhetoric is perfect, because within every community, there is discourse about how best to do it. And there is not an innate perfection to indigenous knowledge, but it is absolutely useful to look at instances of successful living. Yes. And in this case, I think really why I brought this up is because I want to make a point to credit where this idea comes from, because I think a lot of people initially misattributed this to ecosexual thinkers or people like Donna Haraway and Anna uh, Anna Singh, while they do model these ideas, while they do reference these ideas, they themselves are usually in their work saying, you know, and I am grateful to my colleagues from Indigenous Studies who have put me onto this idea. That is important to recognize because like we said earlier, you don't want to fall into new age fallacies of either being like, yes, indigenous knowledge is all pure, Uh, especially first of all, blanketing it and turning it into some weird monolith that it isn't. And then saying that it's like perfect and excellent, we should follow it all the time. That does a lot of disservice to the diversity within all those communities. And it also doesn't really effectively teach us anything. Because you're not even trying to learn at that point, you're just paying lip service to an abstraction of an abstraction. What I thought was special here was this is something that is a radical idea in the same way that viewing the earth as a mother was at one point in time. And then viewing the earth as a lover is also radical. And now I think it's really useful to think of ourselves as in kinship with a lot of different parts of nature. You know, nothing is a prescription from us. It's just a series of things that can be done. Yeah, I've been also thinking about indigeneity, about being in relation to the world. And in studying this, I came across the poet and author Joshua Whitehead, who is an OG Cree member of the Peguis First Nation in Manitoba. And he wrote a book called Making Love with the Land, Essays. In speaking about it, he said, We are always in relation with everything surrounding. Bird song, river tongues, wind breath. I hope that we can continue to keep that as a way of knowing our roles, not as owners of these rhizomes of bodies, but as stewards, as siblings of them. So I thought that was like a nice and Slay. poetic way yeah. to encompass everything that you've been describing, Rouge. Um, I think it illustrates well the connections between the two ideas and also situates it outside of the concept of ecosexuality, which I think is important. Do you want to share a story with me, Mom? <laughs> yeah. You're looking at me like you have a story. Are you going to share it with I'm me, lo- too? I'm looking, at, I'm looking at Gabe and Arush like it's 10.30 on a, on a Monday night. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> Please tell us. Sorry. I need <laughs> no. a bedtime story. No, bedtime yeah, let, story. Me tell you, let me tell you an ecosexual bedtime story about my real life. Um, I've been thinking about it this whole time. 
it illustrates so well this idea about fully facing the environment that you're in and what kind of power you can find in doing so. Um, I believe it was two years ago. It was springtime, and me and a group of people went out to scout locations for shooting a music video. And doing this, we were walking around our city, and it was a very rainy, misty, dreary day in late spring. And we're walking in this area that we discovered to be a Superfund site, which, if you don't know, that is a place that has been designated by the government to be too polluted for anybody to be on. So it's there's a lot of high security. It's I think in this case farmland industries. There was a too much nitrogen deposited in the so in the soil. I could be totally wrong, but anyway, too much of one chemical was deposited in the soil because of this corporation's footprint. We spent that day walking around. There was all this construction and the silt was just sticking to my shoes and I felt so dissociative. <laughs> I was not in relation with the people around me or that site. I felt really alienated from it. I left that space, you know, feeling feeling disconnected, feeling dejected. Later on in the summer, now midsummer, it's extremely hot. The ground is dusty, it's not holding any moisture, and we're still scouting locations for this music video that, <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> um, we had heard that day that there was a train that had been derailed just outside of town. Um, it was carrying coal, and it derailed into a soybean field. The next morning we went out and looked at the wreckage, and it was honestly one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. I don't think I'll ever see anything that truly amazing in my life again. And I mean that in like the most Debordian way. Like it was a spectacle. There were piles of coal everywhere. There was like soot covering everything. And as you walked, the dust was, was just kicked up. All of these soybeans were totally deracinated. And the way that the train had crashed into itself was so violent and these mammoth steel beings like their carcasses were, were piled up and just like yeah just like the fossils and like bones and of industry gathered all around and then a train went by <laughs> and I thought I was gonna die but it was really like I felt so incredibly embodied that day and it wasn't because I had like a more spectacular natural experience or an experience any less polluted by something man-made. It was just that I was able to go and fully face, like feet away, or like literally touching the wreckage. I was able to fully contend with what had happened to the land and how the land had been scarred. Like what will grow there now? Whereas with the Superfund, like there was a fence, you know, like I couldn't go be with it. I realized not just within that instance there was power to be had in facing the terribleness of something, but in my entire life. There's so mm -hmm. much power to be gained by reckoning with the complete horrible awfulness of a thing. I don't know, kind of a downer. But <laughs> no, that was beautiful. That Thank you for beautiful. sharing it. I think 
you clearly felt so embodied the second time around because of the way you described the train, the carcasses, and then to have another train whoosh past you. I think what a intense interplay of like life and death. It was almost as if had we been standing there a bit earlier and a different train went by, like we all would have been decimated. Mm-hmm. But we weren't. There's a book that you made me think of, um, Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. <gasps> I love that book. I think that it perfectly you should read it, okay. Molly. If if this experience is anything to go by. And dear listener, you should read it too because it is a lot about industrialization. It takes place, I think, in this town that has a sort of supranatural aura and effect to it. A train derailment begins the narrative. And from there, it talks about how that derailment almost set the path for the rest of this family and how these strange women that comprise the remainder of the family go on to become either outcasts or assimilate into society Dude, in the aftermath of industry and disaster. If the last episode and this episode had a baby, yeah. and that baby was kind of gothic, it would be that book. Yeah. The language in it is so stunning. It is one of the oh most beautifully written books I've ever read in my life. I must shout out Madeline, uh, because I asked her, I was thinking about this French movie, Started by the Lake, and I couldn't pinpoint what word they were using for cruising. And so I asked her to provide a definition, and she provided the definition drague, or like D-R-A-G-U-E. So like drag, like to drag in a public place. So when you translate this verb back to English, it's to dredge, which I think Ooh. is so apropos. It's so abject. Isn't that so perfect with yes. Gleaner? Also? Exactly. Yeah. Like you're dragging whatever, yourself, through a space, and then you see what comes up. Wow. And it sucks, because I don't think it's... To see the way it was presented in that film, I mean, there was most of the shots of it were golden and green and, like, dappled sunlight. I think I loved how unabject that depiction was. I mean, I think you can dredge things that are not abject like when you like a chicken sit, tender like <laughs> like when you sit in the sand and then you stand up and there's sand on your ass or you you lay in the sun for too long and when you, and when you get back your... in the car you can still feel the sun like in your skin like i think there's plenty of ways when you get sangled is that what the word is sangled <laughs> no this is a word that me and my college friend made up sangling yeah but it's like the, it's the unique feeling of being warmed by the sun. Yeah. Oh, so I, I think there's plenty of ways to dredge and be dredged. And I think that's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's like, let's reframe our ideas of contamination. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I'm thinking about bare feet, like, subconsciously bare dipping feet? your toes yeah. into the sand. Oh, yeah. Like, when you're talking to somebody and then you see that they're just sort of gripping. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or like, when you're laying in the grass and you're you find yourself pulling the grass up like yeah it's like when you're laying in bed we got attacked by those bugs yeah we were having a beautiful night and then that was ecosexual that was so ecosexual they Uh, penetrated your belly button they did (laughs) i had to take out my belly button piercing guys it was terrible Uh, well thank you for letting us contaminate your ears with all these thoughts and if you would like to reciprocate that contamination you can email us at at the navel gaze pod at gmail.com. Good job. Thank you. Or you can also follow us on Instagram, which is 
the navel gaze. Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember anything. <laughs> um, I believe we also have a Twitter. We do have a Twitter. It is the navel gaze. Um, do we tweet? We don't tweet. I mean, I tweet when we have the episode coming out. Oh, okay. Uh, be so like Arouge has a Twitter for us. <laughs> I I literally just. I manage this social media like it is my own personal page. <laughs> um, and Molly owns Instagram, so if you want to no! send her anything. Yeah, actually send her account reels so Molly can watch them <laughs> yeah. surreptitiously. My, my Instagram hygiene has been so bad. <laughs> I, don't, so I don't use Instagram except that I did download the app onto my phone so that I could see and perhaps help post but then actually i just started getting addicted to reels and I, it's ruining my life we post twice per episode i don't know if it's something that needs help. do you think we should post more dear listener you can let us know by reaching out to us at any of these avenues but until then oh, we never introduced ourselves on this episode they so know who we are well, in case you don't know because we're really important my name is gabe i'm a rouge i'm molly thank you for listening Bye. Bye. Pretty good. Pretty nice night, huh? Mm-hmm. For sure. More than nice.